I'm the one that fucked up. I should have figured out what was going on. I should have seen the signs. You know, uh, whatever she was looking for at the time, zero blame on her. For anybody tuning in, you are listening to the Rex Crim Show. John, how are you doing? I'm good so far. Right on. Whereabouts in the world uh, do you find yourself at the moment? Uh, in the U.S., uh, uh, Colorado to be, to be uh, you know, not overly specific, but Colorado. Yeah. I think you're going to share um, a story uh, about yourself, and we're going to speak more abstractly maybe about the state of the, the world uh, as you see it. Mm-hmm. Um can you just shed light for anyone listening on how it is that we've come to be acquainted with each other? Sure. Um, you had a post on Reddit for ex-convicts, and you were looking for people that had been you know, in prison for some time and looking for their stories. And uh, I had reached out, um, mainly because I, you know, I don't know if my story is all that interesting or different, but mainly I really wanted to be able to, to tell people what it's like, um, what maybe even works, and what clearly does not work, at least in American prison systems. Um, and just from my own personal experience, so I'm, I'm no expert. I cannot say I have researched the topic deeply. I'm not a sociologist. I'm just a guy who went through it and just does those perspectives. You eloquently said uh, in writing to me that you were interested in dispelling some of the myths around prison and uh, you know, perhaps pointing us in the direction of where and how it is that we need to make some reform. So uh, by arriving at that, what, yeah, tell us a bit about who is John? Oh, uh, well, these days I'm kind of a uh, well, I'm a jack of all trades. Basically, I'm a contractor. I do um, some voice work. I do um, writing. I'm my I, my skills are that I understand technical things, computers, and the like. And I found gainful employment as a self-employed person, helping companies express that to other people. Uh, part of that is the benefit is that being a self-employed person is there's no background checks, which is a big deal because I've had issues finding work or even keeping hold of work. Um, because, you know, because of a record and that's just how it is. I've just learned to accept that, that particular karma. Um, but yeah, so that's why you, so when you mentioned earlier, uh, you and I talked right before the show about my audio quality. See us, I, I have a nice microphone and I tell people when to click the okay button on their browsers. Um, but that's, uh, but that, that's, uh, that's what I do these days. Yeah, well, I'm delighted I've found just the right person. It sounds like you've got the lived experience uh, as well as charisma. So uh, I'm glad to uh, be you know, sharing this moment with you. So um, maybe you can help us understand how it is um, that you found yourself in prison or, or maybe how, how long you know, it, it was um, that you were inside. Well, I mean, it, the, the details ought to be blood or shameful, but that's, again, that's, that's just, that's just how it is. Uh, oh goodness. Uh, it goes back over, oh goodness, over at least over 10 years ago. I don't want to be overly specific, but at least we'll say at least well over 10 years ago is when it started and, uh, met a young lady. And this is the story that people are going to roll their eyes at. And that's just what it is. Um, and she was a college student Things had gone very, very well, and so we met up later and spent some intimate time together. And then I learned afterwards she was not a college student. Um, hmm. Now I should have been smarter. People can, you know, judge me for all they want on that. Uh, but that pretty much was the end of my life. Um, after about a year and a half of 
you know, getting a lawyer and going through the process and, and this and that, um, I wound up pleading no contest because the state I was originally in, um, it doesn't matter if you knew the age of the, the victim or not, you're mm -hmm. guilty. Mm -hmm. And so I did, like I said, I pled no contest. I was given uh, two years in prison and 10 years probation. And uh, I actually wound up serving uh, 20 months of that, of the, the prison sentence and then five years of probation before they, they um, allowed it for termination. So you uh, were able to satisfy the terms uh, a little bit earlier than had been expected, ostensibly due to good behavior or? Um, well, it, uh, yeah. So, it, so, so on the prison side of things, um, it, and it, this varies from state to state. And again, I'm not a, a legal expert, so uh, don't take my advice. For you, those of you out there who are looking at prison, but depending on where you're at, you have what's called time. You have um, gained time or earned time or, or good behavior, whatever it's called in that particular state. So <laughs> keep your nose clean, do what you're supposed to do. And then every, at least the place I was at, every month they come back and say, okay, you've, do, do, you've been good for a month. You did the jobs we assigned you to. And granted, if you don't take the jobs we assigned you, you go in the hole. So that's kind of the option. Uh, but if you don't cause any trouble, then you get, you know, maybe like a couple days off of your sentence. And the next month's a couple days, next month. And so in my case, it just, by the time I was done, uh, because I had kept my nose clean and did exactly what I was supposed to do and flew under the radar, um, the prison part wasn't great, but 20 months is certainly better than what other people I knew were in there for. So that was that. On probation, um, in my particular case, because it was a sex crime and I get even saying that out loud is always a cringe moment for myself and probably anyone who's listening going, oh, great, this guy. But um, again, 10 years probation, most, depending on where you're at, you can get that, get that off early. The state I was in, you could get it off at 50%. But if you'd completed all your recommended things, so this is paying back your court costs, um, you know, paying your probation officer, at least something. In my case, I, it was very hard to find work. So I just paid whatever I could and and uh, in the end, they forgave that part. And then uh, in my case, there was also group therapy classes that also included a polygraph at the end of it that you have to pass. If you don't pass it, you're in there for another six months. So I just uh, put, my, put myself to the wheel and just did everything I could. And that way I could just get it done as quickly as, as possible. But again, I, a lot of ways I know I was lucky. There's a lot of guys that I knew in prison that were in there for violation of probation because it's it's so easy to do. You're, you're late coming back from work one night, you miss a call from an officer and you're back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many barriers and uh, maybe we'll, we'll unfold some of mm -hmm. these. Uh, you have, uh, it sounds like, you know, made uh, the best of a, of a rough situation, but I don't want to gloss over, um, you know, how it is that you've grown from this, these sets of circumstances. Can you, uh, I guess, first and foremost, um, stemming back from the Reddit group where we met, uh, you know, labels are, um, so loaded and I wonder what the best way, um, you know, what, what are the most appropriate ways to describe you? I think ex-con, um, you know, we talked about sex offense and obviously the, the loaded term of sex offender, they, they don't uh, do much justice in giving uh, a better, you know, appreciation of the person um, that, that, uh, that we're referring to. What are the labels that you ascribe to or that you think would be best in, in, um, in describing your self at the moment? I think like all things, it depends on the circumstance, you know, that there's that line, you know, that the idea of the persona, you know, what, what face do you have depending on where you're at and who are you depending. So, 
uh, when I'm with my kids, I'm just dad. When I'm with my girlfriend, I'm honey. When I'm with my coworkers, I'm John. Um, when I'm with my friends, I'm, you know, they usually refer to me by my last name when, when I'm around friends, just because there's so many guys that are called John out there. Uh, when I, I guess when I refer, when I think about myself as a worker, I think of myself as writer or voice actor or um, too adorable to fire. So that's, yeah, but I, I guess, you know, without getting it too chintzy and, and silly, I, I guess most of all, I just describe myself just as a person at the end of the day, because that's really, you know, whatever labels you put on, that's that's what I am. Mm-hmm. Does John, um, is that a name that is given to you or is that sort of a pseudonym that you use for the, this sort of purpose? I'm, I'm using a pseudonym at the moment, um, you know, and, and I, again, Martin Lee, even as a self-contractor, my, my biggest fear, because obviously my clients have my name because it's on the contract when I, when I do work for them. But every morning I wake up with that fear about, is this going to the day they're going to, you know, someone Googles me and then they see, oh, uh, is this going to be the, you know, it's when I start dating a girl and, and I'm dating this really wonderful person right now. But, uh, when I start dating someone, the first thing I do usually about the second day to say, Hey, I want you to hear this from me first. This is what I did. This is how I messed up. Not not to swear. Um, but feel welcome to feel welcome to swear. It's an explicit show if you want. So just be yourself and no need to uh, to hold back. Okay. Well, golly gee, thank you. Um, but but that said, that you know, so I try to be as upfront when it's possible. But you know, obviously, I don't like wear a you know a big old scarlet letter when I go apply. You know, when I look for clients and and say, by the way, before you hire me, but. Uh, but that's that's certainly that's really an issue. Now, you know, ironically, uh, I'm public. I've got you know, my you know my voice is out there on on different videos that seem to do pretty well, oddly enough. So, but it's always just that: what, is this going to be the day? And if it happens, you know, it happens. I've again, I've lost actual paying jobs uh, because of it, which is kind of weird when you're sitting there for like a month, and then someone from HR comes out and says, "Oh, we finally checked you," and you're like, "Really? Now?" Hmm. Um, but again, that's that is just the life, and so I've I've just learned to accept that. Yeah, I uh, I don't mean to make a crude comparison, but I'm Go just ahead. in the back of my mind thinking of John, you know, and the common term referred to as uh, uh, fellas who are you know picking up sex workers and that oh. sort of thing. Not at all, not at all uh, germane, not at all germane to your circumstances. I don't think. Uh, no. uh, by the sounds of it, uh, it sounds like you're in a in a uh, positive and supportive relationship at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one that brought you to the justice system um, um, mm-hmm. was, you know, more complicated than, uh, than the public perception might have of what a, who a sex offender is. Uh, yeah. It's not, it's not so black and white, is it? No. And, and I mean, I, I know there's some people out there who say that, Oh, there's so many guys out there for peeing on a corner and now they're a sex offender. And, and I, again, I don't know the, the actual, if that, um, um, example how much of that is true i think that the thing that bugs me is i i did group therapy with guys who you know who had done some really awful stuff you know molested their own children or had forced themselves on someone or you know had looked at child pornography and i'm not condoning or or you know for or any of that but i think the one thing that does bother me and maybe this gets in the first myth that i've heard of and this was even in therapy which was uh, you never get over it. You know, it's like being an alcoholic. You you were always in recovery. If you do a sex crime, that that is it forever. Shall it dominate your destiny? You will always 
crave, you know, this. And, and I've kind of walked away going, um, no, no. Um, I've, I've moved past this. Yeah. Yeah. It was a one night thing. And even when I discovered the truth, you know, and, and, and everything that came down, my reaction was, was horror because one, I knew immediately, well, that's it. But my, my life is no longer, you know, going to be the trajectory I, I had had before. Um, I knew how it would be looked at before. And there was, a, you know, I won't lie. There were times where I committed to su- contemplated suicide, but, um, you know, I'm still here. So clearly I didn't go me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, and I'm sure that there are some guys who will, who always struggle with that. Again, I'm not a psychologist, but it seems like, you know, law and order is kind of my example. When you have Ice T coming out saying, "Oh, the sex offenders can't never be cured," and they they make that like a storyline, and I kind of sit back and go, "No, uh, my understanding." And again, I, if I'm wrong, please someone out there listening to this, you know, feel free to 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 correct. But my understanding is actually the recidivism rate for sex offenders is lower than for other groups. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and maybe that's because many, so many states inth- insist on the therapy that needs to be passed before you can get off probation. In some cases, you know, if you don't finish your therapy by the time your probation is up, you just go back to jail. Um, cause probation is you are, you know, given that time out of jail because you've proven that you can be okay. But if you don't complete your stuff in time, well, you, you go back in, you finish your sentence in jail. Mm-hmm. Could uh, you shed a bit of light on anyone that's mm-hmm. not familiar with uh, probation or post uh, incarceration supervision? What kind of expectations? Uh, that's all uh, been satisfied for you now. Um, it sounds like it's in your past by about a decade or so. Uh, long enough. I mean, I, I I'm still on the registry. To be blunt, so that means every even now, even though all of my you know, the prison term and the probation is over every six months, I've still got to go see a sheriff's office. And they're like, all right, sign the form. And, you know, if I move, I get to do the same thing. Um, again, that's just, that's just life. It's on the calendar every six months, go do the thing. Yeah. Um, but as far as probation, so for those who have not experienced it, the way typically, and again, there's, there is probation, um, you know, it depends from state to state, uh, some call it parole, depending on where you're at. It can depend on, some people are on probation or parole forever. You get out of jail because you're not physically in jail, but basically you're still in prison. They just let you walk around outside is, is the best way to explain it. And in my particular case, that means I had an ankle monitor that was attached to a big chunky cell phone. Um, if you think about like the, the cell phones from the nineties, imagine that, but uh, they had to be carrying out everywhere I went. And it was, it was wirelessly connected to this thing around my ankle. And if I walked too far away from it, it would start to beep. If I stepped inside of a building that had too good of a shielding, it, lo- it would lose GPS connection. It would start to beep. Um, every so often, the battery in the ankle would start to die, and I'd get a call from my probation officer saying I had 24 hours to get to their office or else. And so I'd have to drop basically whatever I was doing. And you know, and at the time, for some time, I didn't even have a car. So it was just you know, either take the bus or hop on my bicycle and just pedal as fast as I could. And so they could take care of that. But for the most part, the procedure was every month, uh, go to probation officer. If I was not working, show proof I was looking for work. If I was working, show you know the pay stubs and and who I was working for, so that you know they could call someone to verify. Make sure that uh, in my case, I had to think I had to pay like a uh, hundred and something dollars every month uh, for my probation. 
and that was on you know on top of everything else. That's always that's always amazing. Um, <clears throat> you know, I talk to people in uh, Canada on probation, and and mm. that's not uh, not something that's heard of here uh, in the U.S. Though I think it's quite common that the expectation is the offender, the client, if you will, mm. uh, pays the fee. The the supervisee pays for the opportunity to be supervised. Yes, sir. Um, and in fact, uh, my, just for my prison stay, I still. On the books, there's still a $36,000 lien upon me for my prison stay because every day I was in prison, I was being charged $50. Wow. So yeah. that would be – Yeah. So if I ever buy – which I'm, I'm hoping to buy a house in the next three you know, three to four years is something I'm really looking forward to. But I also know if I ever sell that house, that that particular state could come could call up and say, oh, we we get the profits from the sale of this house or you know whatever else. Hmm. Um, and then from there, usually my probation officer would at least once a month, sometimes more, just randomly stop by my location, uh, make sure I was there, especially during curfew. In my case, I had curfew from 6 a.m. to uh, about 9 p.m. at night. And But in my case, because I was very paranoid about doing anything wrong, my mind it was more like sunrise to sunset. You know, So at, out the door, 6 a.m. so I can get the work done. And I was home when the sun was going down. If I was with friends and they're like, hey, do you want to do something? I'd be looking at the horizon saying, I'm getting home. Because I did not want to be that guy who was caught out five minutes past curfew and go back. So in summary, was there any term of violation during the period of probation supervision? Nope. The closest I ever got um, was there is a uh, – when I came out of prison, one of the, the stipulations was that I was not allowed to use computers or the internet. Hmm. And uh, – but – after after I'd gone through the first bit of therapy and then went through the first polygraph test, I was able to go back to a judge and say, you know, there the process for me to get back at least the access to computers and the internet was uh, go to my therapist and say, hey, I want to get access back. We wrote out a little plan saying, okay, he should be allowed to have internet access and, and whatnot for work purposes. Went to the polygrapher who did a polygraph who said, yep, he has passed the test. He is, you know, doing what he's supposed to do. Um, you know, whether you believe in polygraphs or not, that's that's the process in that particular area. Wow. Then you go before a judge who is able to say, okay, you've gotten to the therapist, you got the polygraph test, okay, you may now do this. And I'd asked them specifically, could I also have a video game console in my house so when my kids are there, we can play something together. <laughs> and the one time I almost violated was because the probation officer came by and was very freaked out because she saw an old PlayStation 2 sitting attached to a TV set. And it's like, you're not allowed to have computers. Or things inside the house. What, what's that? What's that doing there? And I'm like, well, judge's orders. And she she didn't care. But by then, I was I basically said, you know what, officer, it's fine. I will I will I will give it to my kids. And she was like, then you do that. And that was that's what I did. I just give it to my kids and said, here, I don't even I don't even want it in my place because it's I don't want you know even the potential for there to be a problem. Right. Wow. I uh, I mean, there's just so many directions to take this conversation, but broadly speaking, I'm hoping to sort of structure it. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've talked a little bit about your voice work now and the fact that you're uh, still subject to the registry. How long is that? Uh, is that a lifetime um, uh, form of supervision or how long does the registry, when does that expire or does it? Uh, it, it again, it depends on the state. Uh, the state that I was in, I have to wait until 20 years until I'm done with all of my you know, probation and the like. So that means in another 10 odd years, I could go before a judge and say, your honor, I've been doing X, Y, Z. This has been my life. Please take me off the list. But the fact is no one has ever been taken off the list. 
at least right. not that I've, I've, that I've ever heard of. It doesn't, you know, you could rescue a bus full of nuns and they still wouldn't do it. Um, I wonder if the, is that lean for 36 grand? Um, uh, is that also a condition of, of having to be met before the registry or, or is that, is that too draconian? I honestly don't, I honestly don't know. It would not surprise me if, if I was going to be denied, I would not be surprised if that was listed as a reason at the time. Um, right. But again, I think for the most part, the it simply is up to the judge. And the fact is, there is no incentive for the judge to ever say yes because if he says yes to one person and that one person goes out and then recommits a crime, it goes back to the judge, and the judge is no longer in office, and that's the end of that. So right. they have no re- now. Some states they'll do it that well. After ten years, you go down a step. So if you're there is a sex offender, and then there is the the, the step from there, which um uh I um. I can't remember the term right now, but basically there's a difference between if you do it a violent sex crime versus a sex crime. You know, so did you forgive me for being crude, but did you rape someone or did you, you know, look at child porn or in my case, you know, uh, you know, was with someone who was underage? So some states are like, oh, well, after 10 years, you can go down from the higher one to the lower one. After 10 more years, you can go down to another step, and then 10 years after that, you're clear. So it could be 10 to 30 years. But again, it depends on the state. So I appreciate the need to be uh, non-specific, but I think you'd mentioned you're now in Colorado. Yes. Uh, was it a different state that uh, that that we're speaking of, or was it also Colorado? Uh, no, it was it was a, it was a different state. Um, I f- yeah, I finally finally was able to after everything was done and my kids had graduated from school. Uh, it was like you know what I, I I can finally get out of here, and it's just one last thing. Right. Um, yeah, I imagine with the stigma of uh, news articles and you know employment barriers, et cetera, you probably want to distance yourself as far as you can from that uh, specific location. I think. I think in my case, the good part is that because my work is on the internet, um, most of my clients aren't anywhere near Florida. So it was. It was just more about really just wanting just to leave. It right. was just. Um, you know, I was finally done. I had had enough, and uh, I have some friends out here, and and that that you know are, are still friends with me to this day, which is a, a blessing because some of them aren't, and I understand why. Um, but yeah, so far it's uh, it's definitely colder than Florida. Well, I guess so. I think Colorado would be a very interesting uh, place to visit, but um, without becoming too uh, sidetracked, although that's part part and parcel of the of the discussion. So feel welcome to void deer off in any direction you like. But broadly speaking, the structure that I'm hoping to sort of take is um, you know we've talked a bit about your work now, mm-hmm. the registry. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the conditions of your probation supervision, and then we can segue. We're going back and time, then maybe you're willing to speak of your prison experience and then perhaps sure. even, um, you know, some of the mitigating factors around your offense. Uh, at, was there other offenses on your record or is this the only nope. one? This is the only thing. Right. Right. So, yeah, well, I, uh, so, I mean, as I, as I say, feel welcome to, to share as we go, but mm-hmm. I'm very curious about this relationship that you had with a PO. Um, mm-hmm. Was it a, it was a woman, it sounds like. Uh, it changed. It, it would change every few months um, or, you know, this, uh, so uh, my first PO was, was a woman and her thing was, look, you do what you're supposed to do and we'll be fine. The second PO was uh, perhaps a bit more draconian. She was certainly uh a bit more heavy-handed, I, I felt than the others. But again, it's it's ultimately, you know, to be blunt, it's it's her butt on the line. If I screw up, she's the one that's going to take the brunt of that. So I can I can understand where she's coming from. Uh, my third PO is actually a lady, but actually, um, 
uh, she had worked with, with another guy. So he was the one who actually would physically go to my place and every so often walk inside, look around and be like, yeah, it looks fine. And then he'd walk out. Um, that was the inspection he'd do because at that point they knew that I was just there just to get it done. I had not caused problems. I was always on time. I was always doing what I was supposed to do. So at least towards the end, she was like, look, you've got, you know, X amount of t- months left to go. Just you keep doing what you're doing and, and you'll be fine. Right. Can you describe um, anything more about the rapport that you would have established? I mean, was the relationship amicable or, I mean, was it personal, you know, personal at all? Um, how how in detail would you get with, with this person or, or was it more or less just a formality and sort of checking off the boxes? It was, I was always polite and respectful, but in my mind, it was never going to be, it was never a personal thing. And to be honest, I actually felt that to be dangerous. Um, because the last thing I want to do is say something inadvertently or, you know, or say anything at all that could be either be interpreted or that maybe I'd made a mistake somewhere. Uh, and so it was just better that yes, ma'am, no ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. Um, anything I did, the one thing is once I had internet access, I made sure that every communication was caught in email because there were, there were too many circumstances of, yes, it's okay if you could do, go do that thing. And then someone goes, does that thing. And then the probation office is like, I didn't tell you could do that thing. So if I had mm. a job that said, oh, you know, we want you just to work until like midnight or something, I had the thing right there in email. Hey, my boss has asked me if I could work till midnight on these days a week. Is that okay? And that way, if something happened, I'd have a paper trail to back me up. Interesting. So you would interact uh, via email with your PO? In my case, yeah. But then again, I was I again I I was lucky in that I was someone who at least had you know, some technical acumen that I would ask, all right, how do I do this thing? I remember going to my therapist and saying, hey, for my for work things, it's clear I need to have access to computers if I'm going to work or even look for a job these days. Mm-hmm. So uh, other people weren't. Some of them were were either poor or, um, and I'm not, I don't want to mean, mean to sound rude, but or maybe less educated. Um, so, th- you know, they just they would just do whatever they're told or, you know, they were lucky enough to live with family, but that way everybody else would kind of, you know, put them in that bubble from there. But because it was just me, I had to find some way of making it work. So yeah, in my case, I was lucky enough that uh, when I had that access, I was going to use it to my full advantage. And you describe wanting to protect yourself in a way that, uh, you know, you had something in writing, Mm -hmm. kind of like the PO might perceive you as a liability to themselves. Uh, I mean, this is sort of a... um, I want to to use the analogy of a cat and mouse game. I don't know. But um, Mm. is there something to be said about this, the idea of liability? Oh, definitely. Because, I mean... Ultimately, I mean, the, the, the whole point of prison and probation and the like is that literally the state is now your mommy and daddy. <laughs> so you think about if your child goes out and wrecks their car, you have to pay for that. Now, in this case, probation officer clearly not directly financially responsible for you. But the fact is, if I were to go out and do something and, you know, I can imagine the probation officer's boss saying, what the heck, this guy went out and robbed a car. What you know? How why why is your guy out there robbing a car when he's supposed to be on probation? So I'm sure that would affect their their circumstances, their promotion, whatever. I'm I'm not a probation officer because I don't know how all that works, but they definitely saw me that anything I did wrong was going to reflect on them. Right. So I I just made sure that 
I was the guy they never had to worry about. That was my whole goal. Right. And and that was uh, to the extent that even a PlayStation in the house um, was, you know, a, a liability or a, mm-hmm. of concern because it could lead to ostensibly the same sort of offense that brought you in front of the justice system in the first place. Yeah. I, I think the fear was because I could use the internet when I was away from my house for work purposes. So I spent a lot of time in Starbucks having one cup of coffee and having that one cup of coffee for 10 hours so I could use their Wi-Fi and get get my work done. But as soon as I went back in the house, I was on information lockdown. So I think their fear was that, oh, the PlayStation 2 might be used to dial up on a modem and, you know, whatever. Um, again, it, it doesn't matter if, it, if it's rational or disproportionate or not, if it's even – the point was they saw that as a liability, so I had to go. Doesn't matter what the judge said. Well, well, wait. It did matter what the judge said or it didn't? I mean, it mattered to me. But it didn't it, – it, if I had contested it, there was much more likely – because I've actually seen this happen to other guys where mm-hmm. – um, just to give an example, someone that I was with in therapy. Uh, he vanished for about four months and then he came back and what happened is that his – he was – again, this is a therapy for, for sex – you know, people who committed a sex crime. Yep. Uh, they'd walk into, their, into his house during the inspection, looked down, saw People magazine and on the cover was some teen starlet and the probation officer said, oh. Clearly, you're using this as sexual fantasy material. And he was in county. And three months later, he went before a judge. The judge looked and went, nah, nope, let him out. He's fine. You know, mm-hmm. put, put these three months on part, you know, on his probation time served. But for the probation officer, there was that was it. You know, nothing was going to happen to her, to him or her, whomever, I don't know who his, his probation officer was. I don't want that to happen to me. So even though I knew I was technically right. In the power dynamic, it did not matter. And it was better, easier for me to say, yes, ma'am, sure, whatever. It's far easier to get back inside than to get out. And you're describing Mm -hmm. this sort of theme that uh, has occurred in other episodes on the Rex Krim show where we've observed, um, you know, the the presumption of innocence is being lost. I mean, you're you're guilty until proven innocent, certainly in your case, uh, being subject to to conditions of supervision and the registry. I mean, it makes sense why you should want to have uh, written evidence in an email of why it is, um, you know, of, of the approvals or mm-hmm. uh, the com- prior conversations you'd had. So I just find that fascinating. And uh, I, I think it's really interesting to unfold this experience of being on probation supervision for anyone that doesn't have any uh, idea of what that's all about, because, you know, this is something that's invisible. And um, unlike the prison, you know, it affects a great many more people than, than, uh, than uh, looking at the prison alone. Yeah, there were, there were times I'd actually, because uh, I remember when I was sentenced, the judge had a, a choice about either five years or two and 10 is what, is what they call it, two years prison, 10 years probation. And there were times I was on probation, I almost wish I had just been given those five years. Just because mm. it would just be it would be done. Was there much um, was there much negotiation in arriving at the sentence? I mean, were you found guilty by by trial or mm. help help us understand? Sure. Um, the option for trial was basically I'd have to have a lot more money or rely on a defense you know on a public defender. And I think the way that it was expressed to me and. and I actually had saw this happen. So the lawyer had the time was like, look, there's your choices. Either one, you take this plea bargain, you know, which is a five years. And it was really not even so much a plea bargain as much as it was the prosecutor saying, this is what I'll give you. I remember even asking my attorney, well, can we negotiate? Can we, is there any way we can knock this down to any, you know, misdemeanor, anything? And his response was, 
really know. This is this is the offer. Uh, the all, their counter offers go to trial, but if you go to trial and if you're found guilty, then the judge will tip more towards the maximum. So it's either two and ten, or in my case, you know what I thought was going to be fi- either five years or two and ten, or there was someone else I actually knew in uh, met after I was arrested, and he had been there for a year on similar charge. He, you know, in, in his case. I mean, I, I don't know about his own guilt, so I'm not going to go there. But the point is, he was with someone who was underage, and I received a letter from him after I got out of prison saying that he went to trial and he got 20 years. So that's basically the option. It's either take the deal or fight. And if you lose, you're going to get as close to the maximum as they can get for wasting their time. Yeah. You made a deal that you can't refuse. I mean – Ultimately, I could have. I still had the choice, and maybe if I had, you know, the financial wherewithal, and the, you know, you know, I was not poor, but I was also not, you know, as rich as Cross, you know, as rich as you know Bill Gates, whatever. You know, if I had a million dollars instead of just you know ten grand, maybe things have been different. Not to say that you know that my guilt was any less mitigated or or factual, but the you know it, that could have made a difference in my ultimate sentencing, but. That is that is what it you know reality is and and again that I've just accepted that. Yeah, you're pointing out another uh, theme, you know, which is that there's a commonality between those who are involved with the justice system and the their direct economic standing. Not always is that the case, but that on aggregate seems to be the case. So obviously, greater resources would afford would have afforded you more opportunity while negotiating at court. Um, so anyway, here we are sidetracking again. I want to uh, ask more about the the, the conditions of probation, um, but I know that you probably have some more myths that you want to uh, dispel, so feel welcome to do that as we go. Um, you mentioned curfew. You mentioned uh, having to pay fees, having to submit evidence of your employment, uh, possibly be uh, well, to to consent to a house inspection. What mm-hmm. were some of the other conditions that uh, that were expected of you on probation? Sure. In my case, because my my offense was not drug related, um, I only had to do a drug test about once every six months, um, which was, you know, really just a probation officer pointing to a bathroom and giving me a cup, and then they they dipped a piece of paper and said, "All right, go." And uh, but I had to pay for that as well. So that was an extra fifty dollars that or so that they would uh, tack onto my onto my tab. Um, of course, there was in my case uh, there was the therapy, and depending on you know what what your crime is, you know if you have a drug crime, you're going to be going to you know some sort of a drug rehab or or AA or the like. Um, in my case, it was a uh, mandated you know a sex offender style therapy group, which um, really boiled down to some behavioral cognitive therapy for those who know what that is. Um, it was, they gave out a book about how to have a great relationship. And after, you know, 200 pages of, of the book, it boiled down to have love for your partner. And, um, and then the last part was the, there was the polygraph. And, and again, if you don't pass a polygraph, then you're in there for another six months and you have to pay for the polygraph too. You're paying for the polygraph either way, and you're mm-hmm. paying for the ther- therapy either yep. way, and yep. you're it, paying for the drug test either way. Yeah, in fact, I I, I know in my case I'd gotten a little bit behind on my on my therapy bill, um, so I had to catch up before I was allowed to graduate. Um, but that was that was one of the conditions: is at least you know pay off pay all the fees for your therapy, which was what was I think it was like twenty to thirty dollars a week 
for every, and you had to be there every week. If you did not go, then that was a violation of probation, unless you had a really good reason, like, you know, you're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, in which case, probation's not exactly your primary concern anyway. No, no. But even if you miss it, then it's like, well, if you miss this session, then here's the other sessions. You will attend one of these before your next week's session or, you know, or make up. So if, there, if you have to go to 50 sessions, you're going to do 50 sessions one way or the other. There was no missing it. Hmm. Yeah, really interesting to hear about all these uh, additional costs. I mean, it's it seems almost impossible without means. Uh, what, what's a cost? What's a cost for polygraph? Uh, I think it was it was that was about another hundred hundred bucks, as I recall correctly. It's again, it's been so long that that you know, I remember. I, I don't have to, you know the exact figure. Somewhere between a hundred, maybe one hundred and fifty. Wow. And you are then attending a group therapy session. Is that mm-hmm. with other folks ostensibly on probation as well as just through the probation department? Or is it an, another firm that you're referred to from the probation department? Uh, in this case, it's a firm referred to from the probation department. So this was a uh, – at the time, it, started, it was started with by one gentleman. And actually, I started attending the classes before I was imprisoned. Um, cause my lawyer, A thought it was a good idea and B, he also thought that I was clearly having some, you know, mental breakdowns about the situation, which mm-hmm. fair enough, uh, it was a little bit stressful. Um, but then right after I was out of prison, I attended and he had, uh, turned his practice over to someone else, but that was really all that he did was, you know, as so you figure if there's about 10 guys in there every week, so that's 250 bucks a night. And if he's holding, you know, seven to 10 sessions a week that's, you know, you can see how that starts to add up, but that, and that's, that's how, that's how he made his money as a therapist. Um, uh, honestly, the, the first guy I thought, eh, the second guy, I, I thought he was a much more, um, much more precise, much more, I think like scientifically aware. And, but again, that's just my opinion. Maybe I just liked him more, who knows, but, uh, <laughs> either way it was, he, he had a, a sheet of paper and said, all right, these are things you need to do to graduate you read this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do that. And now in some cases, some guys would go in there and they'd be like, just great, laser focus, get it done. Every week, turn in something. Some guys, you know, they just kind of show up and they're just there. And I don't know if, you know, in some cases they weren't really great at studying. In some cases they were on probation for like 20 years. So there's no impetus to do this any faster. Can you think of any, uh any anecdotes or, or lessons learned in therapy? Did you find it useful? Was it was it helpful or was it uh, a hindrance? Um, I think for the most part, it was most of it was helpful. Uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy was actually was actually helpful. Um, for those who aren't aware, this is where if you're experiencing a negative emotion, you basically stop and you start to look inside your head about all right, why am I feeling this way? What thoughts are in my head? And you start you know kind of analyzing. All right, thought A, thought B, thought oh wait. For example, uh, you get cut off on the freeway. You get mad. Okay, why am I mad? Well, because this guy cut me off. That's not fair. Well, is life fair? No, 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 life is not fair. Okay. And you start kind of – the idea is that you you basically analyze yourself out of being so upset. Right. That's the the tenet of uh, CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. It's about connecting Mm -hmm. uh, thoughts with behaviors and emotions. Right. Uh, But there are other parts – I don't know. This may seem really silly to people, but I'm going to go until it anyway. The other part of it was they actually had techniques that if you saw a child, you would purposely make yourself anxious. And they would actually have techniques for breathing rapidly, for doing things. The idea was that if you are anxious or afraid, 
you will therefore not become aroused at the sight of a child. Therefore, you will not your 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 odds of doing something bad are are lessened. And then they from there it was you know okay they're going to leave the area you're going to do the, you know the whole point is you're trying to do things so you don't get into trouble. I mean, obviously, in the case that we're talking about a, a true pedophile, it sounds like this is you know a useful tactic if you know if if we want to mitigate uh, you know the quintessential example of you know. Uh, molestation against right. a child but mm. but in your in your case it sounds like there's some mitigating factors can you clarify uh, i mean how young was this woman that was um on a dating app supposedly 18 years yeah yeah uh, um as i found out she was literally one week away from being 16 right and okay. that made all the difference if it had been one week later um it would not have been as bad. I mean, again, again I, and I not. I don't want to take anything away from my own guilt. I should have been smarter for, for Pete's sake. I should have noticed. Oh, it's kind of weird. She never wants me to meet her parents. You know. <laughs> so, but I think my only problem with with that technique, as mentioned, was and and I applied it because I wanted to pass that polygraph. I wanted to be done. I wanted to get through the class, graduate, get done. And I remember one day I was in a grocery store and I looked down the aisle. And I see a young woman. And so instantly I'm like, boom, go through the procedure. <sighs> and start like making myself anxious. I'm following this. So when I do the polygraph, then they're like, well, did you do it? Da, da, da. Yes, I did. And it, it can ring honestly. And then I looked mm-hmm. again and realized this was an elderly lady wearing a beret. Hmm. And I don't know, maybe this is the inappropriate reaction, but that made me angry because I had basically worked my, you know, now is in a situation where I realized, oh, for the rest, you know, for all this time, I'm going to be like Lily. If I see something that may possibly, you know, even though I have no intention of harming a child or anyone, but I'm going to do this, you know, what kind, what, do, what pressure does that put on a person now that it turns that child from something of, okay, I need to stay away from that to the thing of, I hate these things. They're in my neighborhood. They're in my yard. They're going to hurt me. You know, it's, and I don't know. I, again, I'm not a therapist, so maybe my whole perspective on that is wrong. And I, I fully admit that. I may be, you know, someone else may say, well, it turns out it works. I'm like, you know what? If it works, great. But it seemed potentially actually more harmful, in my opinion. Well, to be clear, I mean, this the Rex Crim show is all about divergent perspectives. And I think, uh, you know, most everyone, anyone listening is probably familiar with the, the mainstream view. Um, indeed, it's your experience that that we're interested in. Uh, so, you know, it's not, there, there's nothing wrong per se. Uh, uh, it's very interesting to hear about, you know, that your, th- your own thought processes, it doesn't sound like you have any, there's, there's no incentive here for you to be dishonest. This is uh, as authentic, I think, as it, as, as it gets. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, gratitude is in order from my perspective in, in you being candid and coming out and sharing your view. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, not that we're anywhere near done yet. I, um, um, yeah, I, I just think it's an interesting take. I mean, it's almost like therapy in, just to unfold your perspective a little bit more. It's almost mm-hmm. as though these techniques would ostensibly get you into a situation where you're probably not going to be able to find an intimate partner. I mean, if you're programming yourself to be anxious to someone that you're attracted to it, it, you know, just to play devil's advocate, this seems counterintuitive to you being uh, satisfied or, you know, becoming a self-actualized person or or fully rehabilitated. um, If I'm being playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's, 
Yeah, and I recall that was one of the aspects of therapy. They actually talked about you know being a self-actualized person. About you know, and they talked very much about finding a partner because the theory was if you have a committed partner you're with and you're being satisfied emotionally and sexually and the rest, again, you're less likely to do something illegal, less likely either molest a child or look at you know things you shouldn't or or assault someone. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a lot of emphasis. I remember in that therapy group of finding a partner if possible. You know, it was not a requirement. But there was a lot of hey, have you have you been dating? Have you talked you know, talked to anyone you know whether you know male or female, whatever your you know your, um, I don't want to say preference. That's not the right word. Your orientation is um, right. You know, how's and, your love? You know, how's your love life? And what does intimacy yeah. look like for you? Uh, mm-hmm. That's uh, clearly something that you know the therapist would would want to be evaluating uh, sure. on, on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, you were going to say something. Oh, um, no. And like I said, as far as me and dating, um, you know, again, that just, that was part of my, just part of my, my process is, you know, was, was if I started to find myself getting intimate with, with a woman, just letting me know, Hey, again, this is the story. This is what happened to me. You know, at the time when I was on probation and I'm on probation, that's why, you know, I can't be, over, I, I actually had one, 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 um, one woman I had met and we had one date at, and actually we went up going to her house and when the sun started going down, I was like, hey, I, I got to go home. And she's like, oh, no, no, it's okay. You can stay. You know, she stay. And I was like, no, I got. I didn't want to tell her I'm on probation. The second date I did, I said, hey, this is why I want you to understand. And she kind of went, oh, well, I thought you were just really, really chivalrous. And I was like, well, <laughs> yes, that too. But also I had to get home. Right. On the contrary, almost. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Well, um, can you – shed a little bit more light on your experience with the polygraph. I mean, this is fascinating, not something that we have a lot of experience with in Canada and something that you alluded to earlier about the uh, uh, efficacy or validity uh, of polygraphs. Um, What was, it sounds like you've done a couple of them. Uh, Yeah, three. I think a total of three. Walk us through what it's like to undergo a polygraph and your experience during them. Okay. Um, so for my recollection, so again, things may have been clouded through time, but so the first thing happens is, you know, you call up, you schedule the appointment. They're like, all right, this is the date and time. Um, you pay your money, bring it, bring it with you at the time. And then the first thing to do is they proceed to tell you about how the polygraph is infallible, that it detects lies with 97% accuracy, that you, it cannot be beaten. Um, and then from there, the procedure is, and they hook up some things. So they, in my case, as I recall, they had a a monitor on my finger to measure, uh, I believe, my pulse. They had a uh, a blood pressure cuff around my arm. They had another um, that went around my chest. And then I had a pad that I sat on. And it turns out the reason for that is, I guess, back in the old days, someone had the theory that if you flexed your butt muscles, you could, uh, you could fake a reaction or something. So now they put that there to detect if you're flexing your butt. So uh, the first thing is he says is, all right, I want you to say no to every question I ask you. So he then said, is today Monday? No. Is it a Tuesday? No. So the idea was that you, you would, at some point you would intentionally lie because you're answering no. And then when that's done, you say, okay, we got the baseline. They tell you, you know, this, you know look, here's the needle. You, this is where you lied. So, and then he would actually ask the question. So in my case, it was, um, is your name this? Yes. Is this your birthday? Yes. Have you completed the therapy? Yes. Have you molested a child? No. Have you been looking at child porn? No, you know, and so on and so forth. And every so often you throw in a question like, is your name Herman? No, you know, 
or I think, I think of that one, you were supposed to answer yes. Anyway, the point is at some point you'll ask a question that's pretty clear you're supposed to lie on. Right. Um, in the middle of it. Uh, and then from there, so I will, I will confess I failed one polygraph test, passed the other two. And the first one, the failure was, it turns out I had zero reaction. So he decided that was, I was using countermeasures and I was purposely altering my, my blood pressure and my heart rate. So that proved that I must be lying about something because I was doing something artificially. That was the finding of the polygraph uh, technician? Yes. So uh, after that, once I then understood that process, um, I know I, I'll be blunt. I, I, maybe this sounds like I cheated, but that this is what I did to get by was so the, the next two times I took it, when he went through the first thing asking, is today Monday? Is today Tuesday? When he, you know, today, what is today? It was Wednesday. So um, is today Wednesday? No, I would count backwards at some random three digit number in my head by seven and make my brain just go as fast as it could. So I was purposely inflating my heart rate to show I'm lying, I'm lying. And that way he at least got a reaction. And then after that, there was never a problem. So it's not really unlike, uh, you know, the, what you described with having to negotiate with your PO, you're basically mm. telling them what they want to hear to, you know, satisfy them that the process has been completed to the full extent as they understand it. Right. And, and I, I also understand why the polygraph is there because if I go to my therapist and he says, John, you passed the class, you're great. Then he goes to my prob- you know, he uh, goes to my probation officer, and they're like, "Okay, John, you, you know, the therapist said you passed the class. That's great." I go to the judge, and the judge says, "John, your probation officer says you passed the class. That's great. You're off." If I mess up, the judge is going to be in trouble. The probation officer is going to be in trouble. The therapist, the therapist will be in trouble. So this polygraph machine can be to blame because at the end of it, they can say, you know, the polygrapher can point to the machine and said, "Well, he must have been the rare three percent that lied, and we couldn't detect it. It's not our fault." Wow. Yeah. I so, mean, it's something we're, we're right now we're delving into your subjective experience, but mm, I mean, this, this, this is in a world that, you know, is arguably um, calculable and objective and everything to do with quantitative, um, you know, in, in, that, that really doesn't lend itself to color and, uh, and experience. So I, I, I think there's a need to uh, hear accounts like this. It's not too often we hear the other side. Mm. Um. Anything further you can share about the polygraph or generally about your probation experience before we, we segue on? I think, I think the only other story, and maybe you know, it's almost a funny one at times, uh, just looking for work. Um, looking for work was hard. I think I had the expe- expectation, even after getting out of prison, was, well, I am – you know, I'm very good at what I do, which is, you know, technical things and, and the like, you know, if you give me a problem, I can solve it. So I was very confident in that. And uh, that was, that was barrier one is I remember I was least on, I, mean, I was on one job interview and they're like, well, we need someone and you need to take in calls and help them with these tech problems. And I was explaining, oh, okay, you could do this and that. And the guy stopped and went, you know, the fact is, I think you're not for, good for this position. We need a manager. Do you think you'd be the manager? Could you start Monday? And I'm like, Yeah. Yeah. By this point, I had literally, literally been taking day jobs, digging ditches. So to me, this was the dream. And he's like, all right, that's great. We'll tell you, we'll start on Monday. We can fill out the paperwork. You know, they'll be doing the criminal background check. And so when that comes back, you know, by then you'll already be here. So we can, and I was like, look, here's what you're going to find. And I remember his face and how crestfallen he looked when he said, I'm really sorry. We, 
we, we don't hire ex-convicts. And I really wish you could work here. You sound like you'd be great. And I'm like, you know, I, I understand. And I shook his hand and I left. There was another job. I, I think I mentioned it earlier where um, I filled out the application. I filled out the criminal background history, filled it honestly. Felony, this place, this time, these things, that, 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 turn in the thing. They hired me. And I was like, wow, okay, they're, they're, they're going to, they're okay. And it was a great job. It was, again, it was a technical support thing, taking in calls, helping people fix things. And three weeks later, uh, some security guy came out and he said, you know, you, you take your thing, you know, don't even take your things. It was, you come follow me and HR met me and they said, oh, you know, uh, we had a call from your probation officer who was verifying your employment and we didn't know that you were an ex-convict. And I'm like, I filled out the paperwork. But um, that was pretty much it. They they let me go. Someone came by and they took a box and took the things I had on my on, on my desk and gave it to me. And uh, they were they were going to offer me a free Uber ride home. And and I was like, I I've got a bus pass. It's fine. Um, and uh, I wound up just working janitorial work. The reason why I had work as I did was um, at one point I was in the job interview and I got turned down. But they said, hey. Uh, we can't actually hire you, but uh, can we do some contract work with you? And I'd never been a contractor or at least an independent one. So as soon as I got back to Starbucks, it was Googling how to be a independent contractor. And, you know, uh, it was tough. I worked really hard and I've, I'm doing pretty well. I, I mean, I don't want to brag, but uh, I'm a lot luckier and a lot better off than other people in the same circumstance. And every time I run across someone either I know or that I can see has been in this thing, I, I most of them just want to freaking work, man. You know, they just want to get up and just go to a job and just make the money and go home to a family or go home to a place. And uh, sorry, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional there, but uh, that's most of the time people on probation or ex-convicts. Yeah. You're always going to have the assholes. You're always going to have the ones who are going to do whatever they're going to do you know, it, as far as crime, but most of them just want to just be left alone, have beer with their friends, go to work and just be a person. Mm -hmm. I mean, the truth is everybody's guilty of something. And, um, you know, the, the, the overarching theme that I've asked other people on the show and, um, you know, in my own, uh, conversations, you know, trying to better understand this plight that ex-cons or folks, you know, who have gone through the system experience, you know, the question is, at what point does, is one redeemable? You know, yeah. when does that ever end? And I, I refer back to something you said earlier, and I like it a lot. I think we might have to include it as uh, part of the title and naming this episode. You know, it, it, you never get over it. It never ends. When does it end? Mm -hmm. um, and in your case, you know, you're just, you're, you're describing a set of circumstances that, uh, well, they'll arguably always be with you, uh, as well as maybe the, the young lady, um, you know, that this whole scenario was about. Um, but the, the, the point that I want to drive home, I think, uh, you know, theme with the PO and, mm -hmm. um, uh, earlier, we were talking about liability. I mean, it's the same case all the way up the chain to this employer, uh, I guess, you know, having an ex-convict of right. that of that nature, it's a liability. You know, if the media found out, et cetera, mm -hmm. it would just be, it's just too great uh, of a risk. Right. And in fact, uh, this was uh, my probation officer later on when, when she, and this was the same one who had a problem with the PlayStation 2, but she, I remember she was talking about me later on. She said, yeah, they was actually asking if, if you was going to be a problem. I was like, has he caused any problems? No. 
well, what, what are you worried about? And they're like, well, there's a daycare a mile down the road. And she was at, I think she, she kind of laughed at that point. She said, I asked him, what do you think he's going to do? Jump out the window and run down the road? Um, so she, she found it more, you know, in some ways just kind of humorous, their reaction. Now, granted, I was a bit devastated, but I could see the humor in that moment as well. Uh, but again, as you mentioned, it's a liability. What if, and that's the biggest fear um, among, among all of it is just what if this person does something bad and we are impacted and we are to blame for it. Yeah. What if, you know, being the, uh, the um, operative word here in, in, in making sense of a risk uh, averse world. Mm. So um, can you summarize your education? You, you are an articulate uh, individual with, with some great employment experience. It sounds like what's your, what's your um, schooling look like? Uh, see here, did uh, went to college. Um, Went, um, got my, got my four-year degree, uh, bachelor of science, um, thought about going back. I don't know if I can, um, just because again, you know, being, being in a, you know, listed as a sex offender, I don't know if I can even, I thought about it going back and getting another degree in something just for my own pleasure, to be honest. But, uh, I'm just someone who has enjoyed learning for, for a long time, um, I think that's why I enjoy what I enjoy what I do as a writer and, and doing the voice acting work is I'm always encountering new companies with new technology and new problems to solve. And, and I get to see how they do it and how does it work? And, you know, how do I explain this to other people so that they can use it too? Hmm. The type of work at the moment uh, is mm-hmm. still contract. It sounds yep. like, and uh, much of that is done over the internet. Can you mm-hmm. shed, a, uh, unfold that a little bit to uh, examples of, of, of jobs that you, that you do are? Um, some of it has been, um, you know, there are these things called requests for proposals. And these are usually like um, the government says, Hey, we want to build a street, you know, put out a, you know, put out a bid for what you will charge to build the street or put install a network center or connect a school to the internet or whatever that is. So, uh, you know, I, you know, I, people will, will go on and there's different job sites, you know, that people, people can find. And, uh, uh, at first I would just find anything I could and just be like, submit. Great. I will do that. I will do that for 50 bucks. And I would write like a 10 page proposal and, and make it cause at least again, I had some experience in that. Sometimes there's learning just on the job. Um, other jobs have been, uh, I've kind of gotten more in the video side of things because that's highly effective. So there'll be companies saying, Hey, we want to. Uh, we have this um, sales site. You know, we want people to understand how to how to make a sale on it and how to log their information. So I'll make a video and record on my computer and then do the voiceovers of. All right, if you're seeing this on your screen, this is what you have to do. And then I, you know, and then I put it all together. I've got you know the basic movie so- editing stuff. And for a video like that, it's it's good. Um, I charge by the hour because I learned never charge by the milestone. And. Uh, uh, luckily, I've, I'm in a lucky place now where I've gotten so much work that I've actually got companies coming to me, um, which is nice. But again, there's always that fear in the back of my mind of, you know, I'm one Google search away from liability. Right, right. And so the liability, you know, is a common theme uh, in almost every aspect of your life, it sounds like, including your your independent work as a contractor now. Yeah, and, and uh, sadly, um, every 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 year I'll do a criminal background check on myself, and it's still there; it still hasn't dropped. So I don't know, maybe it just never will. So just to be clear, then, uh, being sub- subject to the registry now, are there conditions that need to be met aside from checking in every six months? Uh, uh, what specifically is required of you with the registry? What conditions are you held to now? 
Sure. Uh, and again, this varies state by state. So in Florida, there was, you know, you cannot move within X number of feet of a school or a playground or things like that, which can sometimes be a problem if, you know, every place puts a play, you know, puts a, a park in the middle of their neighborhood. So now, you know, you're now without, you know, within 2,000 feet or 1,000, whatever the restrictions were. And that can, that can even vary by county. Um, uh, at the place I'm in now, at least in Colorado, there's no such restrictions as far as space, but it's, again, every, you know, every, uh, so some people it's every quarter, you know, for me, it's, it's, uh, six months and then it's, it's go in, fill out the paperwork. Um, the first time I went in, they did the whole, it was like being booked all over again. The first time I, I, and th- I think this is true for every state. When you first show up, they take a photograph, they take all the fingerprints, they take, they check all the things, the DNA swabs. And then if I move, I have to let them know. And I've got like, I think like eczema business days. Um, I've got a sheet of paper I refer to if anything changes. If I get a car, got to go let them know within X number of days. Um, if I get a new email address, X number of days, I'll let them know on that. So you're 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 now self policing in a way, uh, self monitoring based on the sheet that you refer to, uh, that mm-hmm. that you then self report depending on you know your change of address or uh, purchase of a car. Or what about change of employment? Uh, at least in change of employment, I think I don't. I only have to do that if, you know when I when I go in for my regular times. Again, if if that if someone actually hired me, I would check the piece of paper just in case. Um, but there's also the penalties. If I fail to do that or if I make any mistake on that or uh, forget something, I, I believe there's a case, of, perhaps in Florida, perhaps Georgia, I don't remember which, where there was a whole bunch of guys that turns out they had not registered their cars. And in some cases, it was like for years. And whatever their circumstance was, I don't know if they just didn't know or if they'd forgotten. And they're now all in jail because that's a fel- that's a, at least a felony, a misdemeanor, if in some cases, a felony charge. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it seems like everything is uh, falling onto a political spectrum, and um, my observation would be that probably Texas and Florida would would certainly be leaning um, more conservatively than other states. Has this played in your logic in in my moving from any state? Uh, would you agree that Colorado might be a little bit more liberal than? Mm. Um, than, or democratic in, in your terms than Florida or Texas, for example? I mean, there there were some, you know, I, I first of all, I don't smoke weed. When I, when I told people I moved to Colorado, that was the first thing. My, my daughter was like, it's for the weed? And I'm like, I've never smoked. Why would you think that? She's like, just asking. Um, but uh, I, I think in the case of, for example, Colorado, I can vote here. Now, I haven't lived here long enough, you know, that that's been an issue, but I can vote. Something I could not do in Florida, and and uh, even though in Florida they passed their constitutional amendment saying that ex felons can vote, except for sex offenders and murderers, but even that has undercome a lot of uh, court battles about what 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 consists of your time is done with prison. Is it when you pay all your fines and all your fees, and you know in my case thirty six thousand dollars or not? Um, I believe actually California is very restrictive on people on on the sex offender registry as well. Um, again, I think that was something actually I had a, a police officer in Colorado. It's like, yeah, if you travel, if you travel to California, watch out, man, they will, you know, you got like two days. Um, so in some States, even if they are more liberal than, than others, they can still have incredibly restricted, at least again, depending on the crime, some States, you know, I imagine if it had been anything but, but a sex crime, if I had killed someone, um, you know, in some case I may have had an easier time. And and if you don't mind, and, and you can cut this out of the show if you want to, but I, I, I want to make just stress one thing. I I have no blame for the girl I was with at all. 
I'm the one that fucked up. I should have figured out what was going on. I should have seen the signs. You know, uh, whatever she was looking for at the time, zero blame on her. So I, I, whether you keep it on the show or not, that's up to you. But uh, you feel free to please feel free to cut it out, honestly. But uh, I intend to keep it in, and uh, and right. you know that is eventually where I was uh, hoping to land in the conversation. So I'm glad that you headed it off. Uh, mm. You know, the one of the questions I think in 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 my mind and anyone listening's mind is, you know, how do you make sense of? Uh, of I mean, there's there's arguably an impressionable young child. We, you know, mm. we could say a young person here. Um, you know, how do you make sense of their, of their situation in all of this? And I, I think that you've, you know, you've demonstrated a certain level of insight and uh, an empathy about that, uh, about that plight for for the young person. Although there are mitigating factors, it's not like this is a four year old that we're talking about. No, 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 and. Uh... Without without revealing anything at all about her details and every, I know that after I was arrested, that that girl went through hell herself. Uh, my understanding later on was that her family basically kicked her out, and she had to go find her own place to live at sixteen. Um, so I, I'll be honest. For a long time, I was angry, and I remember even being in prison. There were days where it would just just flare up, and uh, and I really had to just focus and. You know, along the way, my uh, my father actually got me a book. Um, probably one of the things that really helped me out in prison was uh, the Handbook of Epictetus, or it's called the the Enchiridion. Uh, if every prison inmate had a copy of that, I don't know, maybe it would help them out a bit. But it, he basically he said he boils everything down to two things: there's shit you can control, and there's shit you can't. And if you focus on the shit you cannot control, you'll be miserable. And it turns out there's only two things you can control. And it's how you react to things and how you feel about it. And even number two, you really don't have that much control over. Just tell folks how they can find that that book. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, John, but I find that uh, also fascinating. How do we find that book? What's it called like, once more? Yeah, I've got it right. Literally, this is practically my Bible. These I literally had it by the bookshelf right next to me. It's called um, uh, The Handbook or the Enchiridion of Epictetus. He was a Roman philosopher whose village was destroyed by the Romans. His mother was murdered in front of his eyes. He was lame for life. Uh, he became a slave. And later on, he got out and became a philosopher and the teachers of the sons of senators. And reading some of his stuff, he's kind of ragging on them for dressing like girls or whatever. You know, but at that point, he was a cranky old man. But a lot of it is, you know, look, you don't have the control. You don't have it. Let it go. You're, you're describing, you know, the difference between an internal and an external locus of behavioral control. And yeah. you say there are, there are two things that are really within your control. And those two things are? Yeah, your reactions, how you react to something going on, and ultimately how you feel about it, your opinion on it. And, and again, even the opinion, you don't have as much control as you think. But I, I really focus on it. I did meditation. And, you know, every time I, I had a someone I was thinking badly of, I would do everything I could to try to think, you know what, I wish them well, I wish them well. And I, I, I'm clearly a no saint. I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a fuck up as well. But I had to do that for myself. Because if I held on to that, I'd only be making myself worse in the long run. And that for whatever happened to me, that's not going to do anything better. Mm -hmm. 
I don't know if this is an appropriate phrase uh, to use here or not, but you know they say the best revenge is living well. Yeah. Uh, not to say that you you harbor any uh, revenge per se, but you know I like that phrase and I, mm. I I reflect on that often. Have you do you have uh, have you had interactions um, with the what's the most appropriate term to refer to this young lady? The young lady. Well, so yeah, I mean she's she, she's in her you know she's she's clearly older now. It's you know enough time has passed. She's an adult and has family of her own. And uh, every so often, um, you know, after I got out of prison, she actually called me up and she was not actually, we we're not supposed to have communi- you know, communication while I was on probation, but uh, we had a coffee and, you know, that's kind of where I learned about some things that she had gone through. And, you know, every so often it's a, you know, hey, how you doing? It's, you know, but uh, at the same time, I, I you know, I, again, I don't want to go too much into her life. That's, that's her thing and her story, but um, she's, luckily she seems like she's, She's doing pretty well, so I'm glad for that. But you are still in touch, and there's some level of amicability. It sounds like, uh, yeah, yeah, I would say that. So, do you can you can you share who who was the complainant in this matter? Would it have been her, um, or was it her folks? Uh, how did that all come about? Yeah, my my understanding um, is that she had left, I guess, uh, left some left something out, and her parents found it, and then that kind of led to a oh my god. And then calling the police, and then once they were involved, and it you know it all kind of spiraled down from there. Mm-hmm. So, but either way, I'm ultimately legally the the ultimate charge is from the state. So the second that the state was involved, it didn't matter what she said. If she had said, "Hey, you know, I I don't want to trust charges," the parents could have said whatever they wanted. At that point, it did not matter. Right, but uh, ostensibly, the state would rely on her as a primary witness. Uh, in the case, um, yeah, I, I appreciate that you don't want to get into too many details on her perspective, but um, can you shed light on the experience in court? Was this, would you describe her as a cooperative witness? Uh, there was really never any witnessing. There was a, um, you know, except for what they, they initially collected. And um, that was basically, there was a time where my lawyer was thinking about, you know, having a, um, Oh, uh, it, it's it's not the in trial questioning of of a potential witness, but the, it's the outside of one. I'm trying to I don't recall the legal term for that right now. Um, but that was honestly that was going to be so expensive, and and honestly, I thought, well, you know, what exactly are we going to get out of that? She's going to say that yes, I met this guy, and yes, we did. You know, unless, yeah. unless she lies, but um, you know, but that would then make things for worse for her if she had you know if she purged herself. So, um, but you know, in the end, there was a couple times I saw her in court at the time. And, uh, and yeah, that was, that was basically because there was no trial. So there was no, no one getting onto a witness stand and, um, yeah. So that it was, it was settled before it went to trial. Um, mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe for good reason, uh, for your own benefit as well as hers, yeah. but, uh, for all intents and purposes, I mean, I think you have eloquently pointed out, you know, the, the wrongs here and, um, and you know you're not alone in in having transgressed. I think everybody is guilty of some transgression, as I mentioned earlier. And um, you know this is just a, a matter of um, explicating what it means, you know, for wrongdoing and how one can again redeem themselves, or you know how to make something right out of something wrong. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we've safely packaged up uh, in in just a short while your years of experience with 
with probation and mm-hmm. we've segued uh, uh, well into prison. Are you comfortable discussing your transition from, we're going backwards in sure, time, but sure, your, your, your transition from prison to probation? Yeah, uh, you do. You want so? Do, all right. So let me. I guess let me start with uh, with prison. Then um, I remember the day I was sentenced. Um, it was it was me and and um, when the judge you know gave the order. All right, two and ten. I I felt relieved that oh, only two years in prison. Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes I wish I'd gotten the straight five because then that you know you know really in probation it makes the whole thing seven years instead of the you know what four something that I would have served with good behavior, but. Uh, from that moment, I was taken to a room. I was stripped naked, um, shackled. Um, you know, hands behind. You know, actually, I think with that one, it was the hands in front of my in front of myself. But then they put like a box around the handcuffs and locked that as well, and then put it down the ankle bracelets and um, moved me to a cell. And they took it all off and then gave me clothes and then checked with me again to take me out of the cell into a van. Um, and then from there, I was I spent about a week in the local county before they transfer me up to the state prison. And how, how much time was it between uh, sentencing and, you know, this matter at court? Were you in custody during that time or was it leading up to, uh, were you in the community leading up to the sentencing? Um, from the time, so from the time of my arrest, I was in the community um, for about a year and a half, you know, b- between, you know, all the discovery and waiting trial and, and all those things, my lawyer, you know, doing what he was doing, which um, mostly was taking my $1,500 a month payments and then delaying delaying trial until he said plead guilty. Um, and um, and then once I was, uh, once this, I pled no contest, which is means I'm not actually saying I'm guilty. I'm just saying I plead no contest of charges, but you're adjudicated guilty. So it's the same thing. Um, but at that point, I was allowed to put my affairs in order. So I was given an extra month. And then when I went back to the judge and he said what the actual uh, sentence was, it was immediate taken in from that point on. You were expecting uh, that day to be sort of day zero uh, being taken into custody or was that, did that come as a surprise on that particular day? I, I basically, I felt that I had a 50, 50 shot between what my lawyer said of either going to prison or just getting straight probation. Of course I was, I was hoping for straight probation at the time, but mm-hmm. um, say lovey. Right. And you, you describe this sort of uh, dehumanizing experience from the um, onset, you know, being taken into the back room, stripped down. I'm wanting to make an inappropriate parallel to, uh, you know, some BDSM uh, <laughs> thing here, but uh, that's, um, yeah, maybe uncouth on my part. Um, and then, you know, the, 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 the door slams home, so to speak. Uh, do you remember what it was like um, when things were, um, setting in for you and you were realizing the the severity of, of that situation? You know, this may seem like an odd reaction, but I remember at the time it was relief because the waiting was over. I had been waiting for a year and a half and then an extra month and just, you know, just waking up every morning and going to work. Cause I actually, I had lost the, the job when I was arrested. You know, I, uh, I had a, t- a tenant once I've learned the, you know, the facts, I was getting ready to turn myself in, but then they said they sent out police to come arrest me. Um, but so I lost the job they had got a second one luckily and kept that up until the day I was, you know, sentenced. Um, but I remember it was just the waiting was finally over and this, okay, this is, this is what it is, but at least there's no more, what will happen. There's no more, you know, will this go away? There's, you know, at least that was there. And, uh, so yeah, there was actually a kind of a bit of relief in that. Um, um, I mean, it didn't 
I think from that point on, I just resolved just to just do whatever I had to just to get by and shut down and, you know, mostly shut down emotionally. You know, I was polite to everyone. Um, wound up working at a library for a time. So I, I, everybody now is library man, but everybody knew that I was the guy you could go to, to ask questions of, or if, they, if they were in school, they could come and help me with their homework, you know, uh, things like that. But uh, it was just very much, I was just not there to cause any ripples, cause no waves, just get in, go where I was told to do the thing, go back to my bed. Well, it was 20 months in, in total that you were mm -hmm. um, inside. Yes, sir. And, and it was, uh, you, you were taken then from the court to, I guess, county jail for a mm -hmm. period of time and then to state prison. Is that how it works? That's correct. And did you bounce around much uh, between state prisons or was there just uh, one place that you called home for that period of time? That I spent about the first, oh goodness, I think about the first six months at, at one particular camp. So after the initial processing and so processing itself is a whole experience, which is, um, again, shackled um, all the way down. And then when you get there, when you're first processed state level, you're shipped completely naked, searched everywhere. There's a group of you standing there and it is turn around, bend over, spread the cheeks. Um, you know, officers come by, they check you. I was the kind of the anomaly because I had all my teeth and I had no tattoos. The officers thought, officers thought that was weird. Um, and they actually made a point of talking about how weird that was. Um, and then weird, but how, how was it? What was the observations that they were making? Oh, um, I remember the first guy was saying, he comes by and, and he's like, any tattoos? No, sir. What do you mean? No tattoos. I'm like, no, I have no tattoos, sir. And he's like, captain. And captain comes over. He's like, captain, so I, this guy got, got no tattoos. <laughs> and the captain looks me over. I'm, I'm saying there again, buck naked hands behind your back. So you must keep your hands behind your back the entire time. And the captain ever like look you know looks me left looks me right looks around the back he's like all right he ain't got no tattoos just marked down N A hmm. and uh, similar something similar when when you know they had a dentist checking checking my mouth and and he was like you know kind of looks inside and he goes he's got all his teeth and I remember even the dental assistant's like all of them hmm. so um uh but every time you go to a new camp you go through the exact same process again. What do you mean by camp? Oh, I'm sorry. So, uh, you know, depending on what it's called, you know, prison camp. So uh, there's the first one. Uh, in my case, I, it was Orlando. So that's like, you know, the entryway. Everybody starts there. And then when you're transferred to your next camp, um, and depending on the level of, of security that you're at, I was, I was mostly in, in medium to medium high level security um, all the time. So that means I never went off campus. Some people, they, you know, you may see them on the road doing, doing road work. I was never in that group. I was staying right there. Um, once I was settled in, the the place I was in was imagine like a big building, just filled with rows upon rows of bunk beds, and there were seventy guys all in there. And, and there's a partition area where there's a couple tables and a TV set, um, which oddly enough always was playing Cops or Jerry Springer. Hmm. Cops was actually the one that made me laugh the most because I the the other inmates loved watching Cops, and I was always like, what? Why? I don't. Okay. Um, that, that is uh, an irony that could only be, um, yeah, explained in this sort of in-depth conversation. That is, uh, quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and, uh, my other big fear of course was people knowing what my charges were. So mm -hmm. let's, let me, you know, let, let's deal with that right there. Cause I think, you know, people probably heard that sex offenders slash child molesters do not do well, do well in prison. And, 
for the most part, there's both a, a an express code. You know, you don't say, don't ask what your, what someone else's crimes were. If you do, you're looking for a fight because in that case is, you know, you're, you're basically insulting the person saying, I think you did something so bad. We need to air it out for everybody else to hear. But most of the time, I think other people, and maybe again, maybe it's just the places I was at, so I can't speak for everywhere, but most of the time, um, there was just a feeling of just keep the peace. Even with, you know, if there were racial groups and there was, you know, white supremacists in one spot and there was Hispanic folks in the other spot, and there were black people and, and, you know, kind of people doing their own clusters. But even when there were issues, most of the time it was like two guys, you know, a couple of guys from each group who was like, all right, we don't want to fight because then, you know, the guards will come in here and they'll rip all of our shit apart and go through all of our stuff and toss it all over the place and make our lives miserable. Let's just settle this. Um, I think the same thing was true for for sex offenders. At, at least, again, the place I was at, where it's like, you know what, just leave it be. Just don't ask unless unless the guy unless someone's you know making making trouble as it is. Um, so again, I was I was also lucky in that, and again, maybe it maybe it was just pure luck where I made some some friends of some different folks. I remember there was one gentleman, um, big Hispanic guy, who one day he was talking to me. He said. Hey, I just want to let you know that there was, you know, some people who got mad that you're here, but I told them that you were okay. So you're not going to have any problems. So again, I just maybe just got lucky in being nice to somebody who told everybody else, yeah, this guy's okay, leave him be. So, and this is all in, in camp or in county uh, yeah, jail? Uh, you know, th- yeah. So this, this is the state level, uh, in the state level, um, you know, uh, prison. Oh, I see. This is after you've been sort of processed and yes. you've, you've arrived at the state level. I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and from there, so I, I, I went to three different camps. Um, the second was a work camp, which actually was pretty great for me because it was brand new camp and the food was actually edible. Um, I lost about 50 pounds during my 20 months in prison. Um, some of it just, the, the food was just not, oh, not good. Um, no, no, it was, but I'd also made the the you know the 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 decision that okay I'm going to I've got these two years I'm going to read I'm going to study I'm going to meditate I'm going to get in shape and that way when I get out I can be you know I can be ready to re-enter the world such as it was. Um. But yeah, uh, I think something else that you know people may even ask about is is prison is prison rape. Um, you know I know that's that's. I've had a couple couple times where you know a date and and that that came up you know and they're trying to be delicate they don't want to be like but they're like did anything happen to you during those two years and uh, luckily again and I can't speak for everywhere but a couple years ago there was a law actually passed that uh, any sexual contact in prison is a sex crime even if two guys are consensually having sex that's a sex crime if you are caught masturbating. And the guard thinks you were looking at them. That's a sex crime. So that put a lot of onus on the guards. And it also put some onus on the, on the guards that if they see this happening and they don't do anything to stop it, they can get charged as well. So that my talking to some folks who've been there for a long time, I guess uh, years before that was a, that was a problem. Um, I had one guy who said, yeah, there was, there was a guy that he knew who loved raping, you know, child molesters. Um, So at least when I was there, that was, not so much an issue, but then you get the flip side of those few times that homosexuality was not, certainly not condoned by most of the people in prison. But again, it was a keep the peace kind of thing. So even if they were guys that were gay, again, unless they were being 
overly obnoxious in general. They were like, oh, I don't like them, you know, F, so on and so forth. But they would usually let him be. But the few times where there were relationships, I saw this all happened a few times. They usually, you know, unless unless they snuck off in some corner somewhere where no one could see them at all, they they didn't do much. Because again, if they were ever caught by the guards, that'd be a sex charge. Right. Again, one of the many paradoxes that I hear about uh, f- of those who survive prison. Mm. I mean, the the idea of raping a child molester. I mean, this is um, this is a level of irony that uh, mm. you know it's hard. You know, a a a, a media show, a television show, or a Netflix um, mm. show. You know, has this public perception about rape in prisons. You know, it just doesn't quite capture what you're describing. This idea of someone having taking pride in punishing a, a, a you know a child molester by you know sexually assaulting them in the very way that they're in custody for in the first place. Yeah, and, and that's that's an attitude I saw among among the guards, and and maybe uh, again I'm no psychologist, but I noticed that a lot of actions are based on this idea of you know of, of punishment of either you're punishing another inmate because their crime is lesser or worse than yours is. Um, you know, or there were some guards that they were just there to, there to do their job, you know, show up, go here and make, go there, here's your food, do your thing. There are some guards that if you, the only time I ever got beat was I was in line to get my haircut because you have to keep your head, keep it short. That's one of the rules probably for, you know, for lice or, and for fighting. And I was just in my own thoughts, just waiting in line. And this officer came by and he started, you know, having people turn out their pockets, hey, you know, what do you got in there? And he came by and he got in my face like, why are you smiling? It's like, I, I don't know, sir. I was just, I think I was just, I was just standing here. I think I was thinking of a book, sir. What book? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Uh, and his, uh, his partner um, went off somewhere and he came back and he was like, Sarge, come on, you know, take a look at these guys' charges. And they took me to a back room and, and, you know, hit me a bit with their sticks and slapped me around a bit and, you know, asked about my car charges and was it a boy or a girl that you had sex with? And, you know, uh, and then afterwards they said, well, you've only got five months left to go. So I'd recommend not, not filing a complaint about this if you want to live through the next five months. And I went back to my dorm and kept my mouth shut and just kept back on day to day. Yeah. It it really um, illuminates this sort of wider question about the purpose of prison. You know, it, it, some would say that it's for rehabilitation mm. and others would say it's for punishment or a combination of the both. Um, you know, you're describing this example of, of a guard, uh, you know, who's, and, and other inmates for that matter, who are looking for their comeuppance upon comeuppance, you know, they're, they're looking for their just desserts. Um, they, they want to be the arbiter of that mm-hmm. punishment. Um, what is the purpose of prison in your view? Oh, I mean, I'm clearly biased having gone through it. So, uh, but I can tell you this much, at least, at least from what I experienced, there was, there was no re- rehabilitation. It was put you in a spot, keep you contained you know, maybe use you for work at the work, you know, uh, uh, you know, you got guys who are being paid like, I think like what, a quarter, an hour to work at a meat plant. When I was at the work campus, where there was, there was a meat plant nearby and they'd go in and, and that's what they worked at um, or a carpentry place or, 
I think we had a couple of cowboys actually like, you know, took care of the cattle and had to come back in. Um, but uh, as far as rehabilitation, the last thing that happens is the last six months um, when you're supposed, when you're finally about to go is they put you through a class about how to not come back. And that boils down to, you know, don't, don't screw up. Here's what a checkbook is. So it, what it is right now from my experience was not about re- rehabilitation. It was mostly about containment. It was about punishment for those who decided that it, that's what it was for, whether that was the charter or not. Now, what it should be, I don't know, I thought about this off and on. And in my mind, in my mind, the first part of it is I, I, I don't think that any prison sentence should go, on, should go past five years. So that, that's part one. And again, this is all my opinion. So, but that's part one because I knew guys in there that were in there for, for, for murder. And they had spent that time and became some of the best people I'd ever met. There was one guy who was in there for 20, he had been there at that point for 10 years, you know, the 10 years ago. And every day he drew just the most amazing art. And he said, yep, I want to become a little bit better every day. There was another guy I met and he really got me into meditation. And he was there, again, I think for like 15 years at that point. And his parent, his family had sent him books about Buddhism and he he was still rough on the edges. You know, you, you mess with him. He would, he would, he would fight back. He wasn't going to stop, but he worked in himself to be better. So just the fact that these guys are going to be in there for another 10 years, just there. Um, but so that's why I think, all right, the first part, five years, not, there's no reason to keep anyone in there more than five years, unless they've proven, you know, that, that they are such a danger or, or, you know, that they, they can't be rehabilitated. The second part is, some real freaking therapy. And I know this is going to be much more expensive, but really get these guys, you know, you know, therapy and understanding. There was, in my case at least, and maybe it's because I was educated, uh, there was no teaching of a trade. And honestly, what there was was, in my opinion, laughable. Um, you know, maybe there was like a little bit of here's here's how to lay some bricks or here's some things that it met maybe the qualifications of teaching someone how to have a trade. But it, it was – Whoever was offering those classes, it was like the the bare minimum just to get through. Heck, they tried to put me through a GED program at one point because I think they were certain that I could pass. And when the uh, uh, when the the major of the camp had my had my inter my job interview, and they're like, "You've been recommended for the GED, yes, sir. You have a college degree, yes, sir. You're not going the GED program, yes, sir." So I was assigned to Molans instead uh, until I got the library position. Hmm. Unfold that a little bit. Help help us understand uh, what you think the perspective was there. Um, you were originally being signed to go to a GED or an equivalent of high school mm-hmm. program, even though you were well overqualified. Yes. Uh, and and when the uh, some of the terminology I find really interesting, you talk about it in terms of a camp, and then you I guess what you might call the warden or the major uh, comes over to you and says, "No, you're well too overqualified for." you know, the GED program, we're going to set you up to cut, to, to do labor. Yes. What, why, what do you make of that? Help uh, make sense of the, the logic behind that. Sure. Um, it, mainly because I actually knew someone um, and he worked as, as one of the, the teacher's assistants in the GED program. And what he explained to me was that in this case, it was a private company whose people were hired to put people through the classes. I know in the last class where I, when I left the library and was in the, that class I mentioned, which is like the don't ever come back class. Um, I became the teacher's assistant in there because the, um, the teacher of the class 
don't know. He, uh, he was a good guy. He was, he was someone that the other inmates said, don't mess with this guy. If someone messes with this guy, we will jump you instead. He's a good, he cared about the inmates. He really tried to talk to them and treat them like people. But, um, but because it's a private company that's offering these classes. So in their minds, if I had gone to the GED program and passed, which I mean, I like to think I would, I would have passed without too many problems, then they would have gotten paid for me passing. I graduated. Therefore, you know, here, here you have accomplished your contract. Here is your, here is your money. And that's, that was, again, I, I don't know the actual contracts. This was how it was related to me, who's someone who uh, was an assistant in, in that GED class. Mm-hmm. Was the prison that you were in private? Do you know? No, no, no. Um, I was at all the prisons I was at were state prisons. I knew at least one guy who, uh, who had left and he was transferred to a private prison. It was a private uh, religious prison, as I recall. And he specifically wanted to go there because it, he felt he would, he would have an easier, you know, a more comfortable time um, than where he was at. So I can't fault him for that. But even, you know, this idea of privatization uh, does not elude us, even in the conversation about GEDs. It sounds to me like, uh, I mean, you're being put into a situation, you and folks who go into prison, um, you know, arguably, as other people on the Rex Crim Show have observed, you know, being set up for failure in an economy where there's this sort of crime control as industry. Everyone's getting paid, including the, the the COs, the uh, POs, the polygraph uh, technicians, the GED people who are, um, you know, uh, passing you supposedly. Uh, and then, you know, you're set up in such a way that the skills you learn are not that useful. So the likelihood of you returning back to prison and thereby becoming a product of the of the crime control industry sort of is complete and, and the system goes on in this problematic way. Am I wrong in this observation is, or is there some, um, yeah, help, you know, shed a bit of light on how you see this plight for anyone who's facing the likelihood of being involved with the justice system. Yeah. I, I think there, I think there are two aspects. I think on the one side, take the GED program. That's a, that's a good thing for inmates who don't have, you know, their, their high school diploma. So I can understand that the thinking and the logic behind it. Uh, the problem with everything else is it always, you know, it goes, it goes back to the incentive. You know, what is the incentive of the company? Is it to actually teach people what you would have learned in high school or is it to get people to pass the test so that they can get paid? Now that's why they want to be in there. Um, originally until, you know, the, the major when going through the interview was like, mm, no, he, he saw what was going on and put me out to cut grass instead. Um, I see. So right. actually, he did. A, he he sort of did uh, the right thing here. The justice was served mm-hmm. in that small little way. Um, some could say because they're they're freeing up a space for someone that could genuinely use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, the, there's. Or, still, or am I wrong? Or am I mistaken? No, no, no. no. I, I, I no. I, I I think that you have it. He saw that this would be a waste of taxpayer dollars by putting me through this program just that, you know, to give, to give a company an easy win when it was not, it was not necessary. Right. You know? Um, so yeah, there was a lot of that in there. There's, you know, the canteen, I think is a good example. Um, if you go out and buy a 10 pack of dried ramen soup, it'll cost you, I think last time I checked like, you know, $2 and you get 10 in a box. That's exact same ramen is sold in prison to the inmates for 50 cents a piece. So something that is ten cents in the outside world is now fifty cents, and and uh, because there was no smoking allowed in 
the state prisons I was ever in, I think it had been it had been uh, outlawed a couple of years before, which really made some of the inmates upset. But um, there was a lot of smuggling of tobacco in there as well. But um, but yeah, that the soups were the, the currency of exchange in most of the prisons I was at. You know, you need some stamps. You know, all right, uh, two stamps for a soup or or whatever. But What's, we knew what, we were, what what is a okay. stamp to send po. What, what what is a stamp? Oh oh yeah, uh, yeah, postage stamp. So oh, in I my see. case, yeah, in my case, my biggest expenses were paper, pen, envelopes, and stamps because I every day I wrote to my family and some friends, and then every Friday I'd mail them out. And so my, you know, my whatever I did to either make money in prison because um, I was never given a job where there was actually money involved, or for what, what money I got my family to to send me, or sometimes friends would just do it for my birthday, which was you're very kind of them. Um, but that would mostly go to papers, pens, envelopes, and stamps in my case. Yeah, but either way, I did get back to your original thing. There is a lot of money, which you see a lot of in, in any government contracting thing. And again, I'm not casting aspersions on, you know, on on all government contracts left and right, but the fact is there's a lot of people that are making some money at this at all different levels, from the therapist to the polygrapher, as you mentioned, to the people that were teaching classes, to the people that are selling things to the canteen store. They're making you know money off there. Uh, any any uh, the phone calls of all the things those are the most egregious. Um, my my ex wife was incredibly kind because I know that she struggled because you know while I was out because I'm certainly not paying child support while I'm in prison all those years and and I'm still trying to pay all that back now. But she would pay the cost so that I could call my kids every Saturday morning. But I think that you know that was like. $20 that she would spend or something like that for a three to five minute phone call, you know, and which is, which is outrageous. And especially when you think you want people to have connections to their families, when they get out, they have a support network and they can do things to not come back. And again, I, I know the counter argument is, well, they can also use that to, you know, to plan more crimes. And I understand that that is a fear. And this is why everything is monitored left and right. But the the fact is also, it's really hard to have, and a relationship with people that may be the one supporting you if you can barely talk to them or communicate with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the whole e economy behind um, mm -hmm. what's going on in prison is not really unlike looking at any other industry. I mean, the same issue occurs in schools. So um, mm. I think, uh, you know, I just want to plug this idea of a fantastic criminologist, Nils Christie, and he wrote a book called Crime Control is Industry, which I've mentioned before in the uh, in another episode. And I think it's just uh, part and parcel to what we're talking about here. Um, also, the idea of ramen noodles is not uh, is not new to this show. We've heard about the, that as a currency on the inside. I imagine. I, mm -hmm. I can I, I can just uh, I I suppose the food must be that bad if ramen noodles is the uh, standard to look forward to. Uh, it's not so much a standard. Is it, it's it's uh, it's like any currency. It's easy to transport. You know, it's dry. It it stays good forever. You know, that soup can be there for three years straight and it'll still be good. So. I think that's most of the reasons why it's there, but it's also a food staple. Um, you know what I have not had in years, but I'll be honest, there's some times where I still crave having a ramen noodle soup sandwich, which is where you put a little bit of hot water in, in the packet, you cook it until it's like not quite cooked at all. Uh, I'd have this tuna fish that with spicy tomato sauce, you put that through and you use the ramen noodles as bread. And uh, every so often, like, you know what? That actually tasted pretty good. But <laughs> these days I can actually use a, a real kitchen, which which is better. But uh, I think those were one of the, the few like moments of pleasure I remember 
in in prison of that moment of oh this is this is nice mm. the smallest bit of uh, liberty in uh, in a hostile environment i wonder about other lessons you can think of on surviving prison for anyone looking at going inside uh, not by choice obviously mm-hmm. but um, mm-hmm. but you know if you can think of any other tidbits or small details like that they're they're certainly welcome what i really want to know uh, about now is if you're able to pivot a little bit sure. i wonder if you can put yourself um, in the shoes of the guards, uh, you know, mm-hmm. COs, the way you did the young lady um, who was involved in this case. How do you make sense of the way that COs, you know, especially this egregious account of a guard coming up and, and uh, um, you know, tormenting you, or I don't know what the right word is, but um, sort of baiting you in this way. How, mm-hmm. how do you make sense of uh, of their thought processes? Can you make sense of... For us, you know, what do you suppose is going through their mind at that time? I mean, clearly, I, I I don't know what's going on inside of anyone's head. I'm not I'm not a god or telepathic. The only, just from my observation, again, it, it, some guards perfectly fine. They're you know they do they're just there to do their thing, and you could tell because most of the inmates, you know, you kind of when when that guard comes around, most of the inmates at least brighten a bit. Is like, hey, it's so and so, and you know, um, but I think the other ones they're. The idea that someone is not feeling miserable in prison is just—it's to them, to some of those 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 guards, it's just wrong. You know, if you look like you're at all in any way, shape, or form not miserable, well, then clearly something's wrong, and you need to be made miserable. Hmm. You are here. There, there's a line, and I—I've never read the book myself. But I heard an interview with the author. I believe the book is called *The New Jim Crow*. Hmm. And I remember hearing an interview with the author where she said that. America has an unending thirst for punishment. Yeah. And so for some of these officers or probation officers, because I well, I was lucky. Again, I even even with the one that that snapped at me a couple of times, you know, um, some guys had a lot worse. And I think in some cases it's it's some of it is is uh, you know, we're gonna be by the book and they interpret what by the book means. And I think in another case it's just my job is to punish you and and if you were not miserable and sad then you are not being properly treated. You need to be made to feel as, as worse, as bad as possible so that you never do this again or maybe just because you just deserve it. Mm-hmm. I believe the book you're referring to is The New Jim Crow Mass Incarceration in the Age of uh, Color Blindness by Michelle Alexander. I believe so. Yeah, I'll put, the, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone interested in checking that out. Um, I guess you might have been listening to her in another podcast or something like I, that. I believe, actually, I heard her in prison because I, I, for a time, I did have a radio, and uh, every so often I was able to. The radio stations didn't come in very well, but every so often I catch NPR. I remember hearing her, her, uh, an interview with her, and when she said that line, it just kind of uh, stuck with me. By the way, that book is available at Amazon and fine bookstores near you. Right on. Uh, shout out to uh, shout out to Michelle and Alexander, and to your own. Um, Michelle Alexander, I should say, and to your own uh, voice uh, over capacity, <laughs> um, you'll be able to plug yourself if you want. Although that might be difficult to do um, if you don't want to identify your your true um, business uh, name. Sure. I guess what I'm really wondering is the the difference between going from county jail to state uh, prison. Can you uh, explain any of the tier? 
walk us through this this uh, process. Uh, uh, it's almost like you've gone through tiers. Maybe while you were being assessed, your risk was being assessed. Um, I think I think the first part is is you know there there is jail and there is prison. Um, and this could be my mistake. I always get the two flipped around anyway. But the point is, when you are arrested, you're usually like in the local county, uh, the county jail, where you were held either until you make bail or until there was a trial and you were either adjudicated guilty or innocent, and then whatever your sentence is. Um, so from there, at least in the county, in the county spot, um, some people will do work on the you know internal work. Some of them are doing external work, even while they're awaiting trial. Dep- again, depending on the severity of their charges. So someone who is arrested, say for, you know, uh, minor drug, you know, drug possession or even selling, they're probably someone that will not be spend that long, or even if they do, that they may be, you know, allowed to go out in a, you know, an orange jumpsuit and clean up trash on the road. And in exchange for that, they get some privileges like, you know, um, you get free, you get fed first in your, in your cell block. If you do those kind of things, um, other people, you know, of course, if you're charged with your murder or in a sex crime, you're never going to get outside, um, but maybe they'll, they'll let you do jobs inside, like sweeping the floors or or something like that. It's in some cases it's a you get privileges. In some cases it's like, well, you know what, I got nothing else to do. Um, so there's that. Now on the state level, um, there is a. Do you kind of go back to the job thing? You are assigned a job. You have the choice of either doing that job or going to solitary confinement. And I spent about three weeks in solitary confinement. Um, through a whole thing, which is a whole different story. Um, luckily, it's not because I did anything wrong because they didn't know what to do with me at one point. So they just put me in solitary until they decided. Um, but they even ha- they'll have tears as well. So some places, you know, I, I've luckily I never spent time in, but I saw people who were taken to maximum security, and those the spots maybe more like traditional that people see in the movies where it's an individual cell. There was a bed in there. There's a toilet in there, and there's a door that locks. It opens up. You're given your food. You're sometimes allowed out when you're, you know, marched out to a spot where you're allowed to get some exercise. Uh, in some of those places, the exercise is you were put into a cage with some pull-up bars, or whatever inside, and then you're put back in your cell. Um, some places, like I was at, was more medium security, um, which is where you're housed with a whole, you know, room full of guys. I think you know, seventy guys. I think were like inside the building I was in, and, and all these bunk beds. Um, again, never let out outside the compound. You're at least there's a place where you can, you know, take it like to a field where you can run around in and, you know, do some exercises. But again, this is something else. Let me dispel one quick myth. If anyone ever seen a prison movie where you see people working out with weights, not happening. I don't know where that's coming from. Maybe that's something that used to be in the past, but they would consider those, all those things, deadly weapons. So no, your, your only weights is, uh, you know, maybe a pull-up bar that has been drilled so deep in the earth it's never coming out, and then a, in a you know a big old ring around a grass field that you can walk around in or maybe jog if you're so inclined. Mm-hmm. But that weight pit would be a luxury not afforded uh, on account of the security. Um, I don't even know that even in light security that I'd even see that. Uh, but again, I I never went lower than than even the work camp I was in. Um, it the closest thing was again maybe like a, a pull-up bar, and that was about it. Well, I, um, I, I'm, you know, being mindful of your time. I mean, we can, we can go over every aspect of prison, but, uh, I think it's important to give hope, sure. um, for, for people that are listening and people that might not have made, um, as much progress in their worldview as you have. Um, so, you know, aiming towards the idea of reform mm-hmm. and, uh, and how we can go about improving the situation, maybe you can, uh, 
shed light on, you know, your experience transitioning out of prison. What was it like leaving? Um, leaving was kind of odd um, in that, first of all, my, my ex-wife, again, was kind enough that she 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 had to drive up for an hour to come get me and then take me back and let me stay at her place for a bit until until I found uh, something else. Uh, but in my case, oddly enough, leaving was like coming in. They stripped me naked, strip searched me all over as I was getting ready to go. I don't know. Maybe I was going to steal something from the prison, uh, you know, encyclopedias, whatever. Um, and then they, because of my circumstances, they then put the ankle bracelet on me. And um, and I was then told I had 48 hours from that point to report my probation officer and to present myself at the local county sheriff's office to say, you know, I'm, I'm an ex-convict on probation. Here's my address and, and so on and so forth. Uh, in my case, some some inmates um, at the time when they left, they were given fifty dollars in cash and a change of clothes, some shoes. Uh, in my case, I didn't get that because one, my ex wife brought clothes, and two, a friend of mine had sent. I don't know. I think she sent like fifty dollars on my on my birthday, which was six months before my release date. So it turns out if you get fifty dollars in your personal spending account within six months of your leaving, they take that amount out of the money that you would have been given when you left prison. So I went, you know, I was given nothing. Luckily, I had a couple hundred dollars at least in in a savings account that was still there. So at least I had, you know, I didn't have zero. And again, I was lucky. I, you know, at least I had a place to go to and a place to stay for at least a bit. You know, at least I'm healthy enough. I was able to work in some way. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. You mentioned. Go ahead. No, it's it's quite all right. I'm I'm wanting to uh, make best use of the last few minutes we have together. I wonder if you can shed light on what uh, how this has impacted your your family. You describe you mm-hmm. know an ex wife, um, kids. Uh, how do you navigate conversations with them about your experience in the justice system? So uh, my kids are great. Because a few times I've actually brought up with him and said, "Hey, I'm sorry," you know, because I'm sure that they were embarrassed. I mean, it could it could not have been easy going to school or, you know, having your dad and the paper for being arrested and the charges. And uh, they've never once said anything bad. They've never once blamed me or said, "Dad, why'd you do this?" You know, usually maybe it's because you know at the time they were teenagers when I was talking about it, they were just like, "Yeah, it's okay, Dad. It's all right." Um, but they never. They never made me feel worse for having let them down. So uh, credit to them for that. Um, my ex-wife, I mean, I know she was clearly upset. Um, you know, at the time was she your was she your ex at that time? We were we were separated at the time. Uh, obviously, this cemented, and that was you know she divorced me from there. So we you know it was a this is probably my own stupidity as well. Was he separated? Oh, okay, I guess I'll try dating a bit, seeing you know seeing what's out there, and. Uh, no, that didn't go well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I almost joke now when I date someone, it's like, yeah, do me a favor, bring your driver's license, a check for ID. Um, yeah. I actually told one one lady that, and when I she asked why I told her, you know, on oh, here's the reason why. She was actually funny that when our, on our second date, she brought like five of her canceled driver's licenses. Um, but, but again, getting back, as far as my family, um, you know, they don't, they never rub my face in it. You know, I, I think actually, I think my ex-wife for a while was upset because she couldn't seem to figure out like, well, why can't you get a job? And it, oddly enough, later on at some point, she was dating a guy who was an ex-convict himself for, you know, not very long. But but uh, I remember he and I were talking one day and I remember afterwards, she was a lot 
easier. And he actually said, yeah, I mean, she was complaining about you. And I told her, you don't, you know, she doesn't know what you're going through about how hard it is to find a job. And he was someone else who went into self-contracting like I did. Mm. Um, so I think after that, I think, but there's three times she said, Hey, um, you know, I've got to leave town for a bit. Can you, can you spend the night with the kids? And I'm like, I'm on probation. Can you ask your officer? I could ask, but let me tell you what's going to happen. And, and I, and I, I don't fault my ex-wife for that. I think she just didn't, she could not. And I hope, I pray no one has to comprehend what that's like. Um, but that, you know, but that's, you know, that, that, that was that situation. So, but I, I know, I know it impacted them. Um, I was away for years and even when I was on probation, you know, they were, they were still teenagers at the time. So I didn't spend as much time with them. And that's, you know, again, just time that's, I think people have this idea if you get time back in some way, or I'm going to make, I'm going to make it up in some way, or I'm going to spend all this extra time. And the fact is that time is gone. It's gone. You don't get time back ever. Right. You, you pick now and you go on the best you can and you, you know, you try to, you try to make what right, what you can, but ultimately it's not like you can then say, Hey, I'm going to spend, you know, twice as many weekends with you. Uh, to make it for the lost weekends because you know there's no such thing mm. it's just gone should we end on a note of hope should we have some yeah hope? i i want to i, I want to give you the last word but i'm hoping that you can uh you can give you know some words of wisdom um but my final question to you though is if there was one lesson to take away from uh this conversation for folks listening in the direction of reform mm-hmm. what lesson might that be? I think the biggest thing, it goes back to fear. It goes back to that what if, you know, it goes back to what if this person does a bad thing and, and yeah, it happens. I mean, it, that's what destroyed Michael Dukakis's career is he was like, Hey, you know, we'll let these guys out for the, you know, for the weekend to do some work. And one person messed it up horribly. But you think about, you know, I have like 10,000 people one messes up. There are people, and again, in my situation, all I want to do was get a job, just do the work, and just and just just try to live. And if there's anything that we could change about this entire process, the entire system, whether you think that you know ther- therapy in prison is the you know, is a great thing, or whether really giving a, 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 a education and a trade, whether they deserve that, when there's people out there who don't have that, and I understand the thinking, but ultimately. If people could just see people who have made a mistake, made a wrong choice, whatever you want to call it, and just give them that capacity to to try to live as a person again, whether it's voting, you know, whether it's it's having a job, whether it's getting you know being able to go get an education, and stop being afraid. We're we're told all the t- you know between media and and it's easy to say oh the baby of the movies, but the fact is, the reason why someone can run on being hard on crime is because that's that's what get votes, because people are scared, and I understand why they're scared, and I understand that there's some really bad people. Well, I should I don't believe in bad people. There's people who have done bad things, but at the end of the day, that fear is what is making things probably worse in the long run because then if they aren't able to work and if they aren't able to support themselves, what are they going to do? Mm-hmm. It's not going to make them any better. It's certainly not going to 
it's not going to make them any less scary when, you know, they can't find a job and they're angry or pissed because they're taught in therapy to fear things and, and they're out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. It, it all comes back to, um, you know, this theme of risk liability. Mm -hmm. And as you eloquently point out fear, and uh, I think there's some courage uh, to be recognized in you, as I'd mentioned earlier, coming on this show and sharing your story. And so I'm uh, sincerely thankful for your time mm -hmm. and uh, for sharing this. Is there any um, thing that you are interested in plugging? Uh, are you involved in any sort of uh, activism? It sounds as though this is not the first time you've given such a talk. Mm -hmm. um, where can folks find you if, if that's something that you're interested in sharing or do you prefer to keep anonymous? Well, uh, as far as myself, I keep anonymous and it, it's ironic. I actually know this is really the first time I've shared something like this. I'm actually more worried about joining such advocacy groups because I think that my presence would make things worse again, because of that fear, you know, so I, I volunteer what I do, but I always do it as, as anonymously as possible and kind of, you know, do my thing and then, and then leave. Um, so as far as anyone else, you know, I, I don't really have anything that I can, I can really plug. I, I'm not religious. I haven't been for a long time. And I know that's kind of the irony is that people always think that people go to prison, have a come to Jesus moment and the rest. And maybe I was the opposite, but, uh, there's a line for those of that, that are religious, there's a part where Jesus is asked, who goes into heaven and who doesn't? And he says, if you fed the hungry, if you clothed the naked, if you helped the sick, if you visited the prisoner, that's who's going to heaven. And the ones who don't are the ones who didn't do that. He didn't talk about all the things that people want to go on about, you know, between homosexuality and abortion and this and that, he talked about those things and said, that's what decides whether you get into heaven or not. So I'm not religious, but I think that's one of the most beautiful ideas I can pass along to people is if you really want to make the world a better place, if you focus on those things, imagine how much better the world would be. Yeah. Now I can truly say I can't think of a better note to end on, and this idea of forgiveness is uh, is a powerful one. Um, on behalf of anyone who's tuned in this far in the show, um, thank you for your time. Thank, thank, thank you all, and thank you uh, everyone out there listening. Um, and, and thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. 